This month on Nav Digital Next, we're speaking with Ivo Yenik, joining us from Washington. Ivo leads the fintech and financial inclusion practice at CGAP, the consultative group to assist the poor, a division of the World Bank. I got to know Ivo when he was leading some of the early work on looking at the opportunities with regulatory sandboxes, and he continues to be a leading thinker on how tech innovation can help to improve the economic status of people around the world per the World Bank's mission. Ivo, thank you for joining us and welcome to Nav Digital Next. Thanks for the invitation, Brett. Pleasure to be here. You know, it's, it's great to speak with you again. And maybe before we get into the specific examples and trends, I was wondering if I can firstly get you to tell us a little bit about CGAP. Uh, I'm conscious that as I've spoken with some of my colleagues in the last few days and I've referred to you, um, they're all very impressed by the notion of CGAP, but in a lot of cases, not terribly familiar with what it actually is or how you do what you do. So could you tell us about CGAP to kick us off? CGAP is a financial inclusion-focused think tank and research organization that is hosted by the World Bank. We are headquartered in DC. Uh, we were founded in mid-90s. And importantly, we are funded and, and, and supported by over 30 member organizations. Those are bilateral, multilateral organizations, development financial institutions, private foundations. And as I mentioned, we are focused on financial inclusion. So everything that we do has to do with the question of how we can bring more people into the form of financial services and very often how innovation can help us with that kind of uh, objective. Our vision is responsible and inclusive financial ecosystems that enable a green, resilient, and equitable world for all. And, and to achieve this kind of vision, we do a lot of experimentation working with financial service providers, with regulators, with international policymakers. So yes, that's that's what CGAP is. Very, uh, very collaborative model, uh, as you describe, with the, the extensive partner network that you need to work with around the world. Um, maybe before we get into some specific examples, I did notice there was a, a really interesting debate recently on LinkedIn about whether financial inclusion really helps people and whether it really helps lift people out of poverty. And I thought there was a really interesting insight that Sapnendu Mahanti, the Monetary Authority of Singapore's Chief Fintech Officer, uh, offered. He weighed in that we really need three essentials being social inclusion, and he cited that in terms of digital identity, although I'd say it's probably broader uh, as well, financial inclusion, specifically in terms of accounts and the basic banking suite, and economic inclusion through things like marketplace access. And I thought that really resonated for me in the sense of financial inclusion being important, but not by itself sufficient. Just interested in your reaction of, of Sopnendu's comments and, and whether we're thinking about that in the right way. Yes, so these uh, conversations uh, they tend to occur in in some sort of cycles where you know somebody uh, always questions, and I think it's right to question uh, the impact of financial inclusion and its relevance. For example, achieving the the development objectives, and so so to your point, and maybe to Supendu's point, actually regarding those three. I would say dimensions of inclusion, right? The social, uh, financial, and economic inclusion. I think that very much resonates with with how we see the world and how we see the importance of financial inclusion, and also how we articulated that vision. I, you know, the vision is responsible and inclusive financial ecosystems that enable green, resilient, and equitable world. So we do see financial inclusion almost as the enabling layer that eventually should help people to live better lives 
by seizing economic opportunities, by uh, participating in different economic activities, by being part of the broader society. So I would need to think a little bit more about what is the correlation or position of those different uh, dimensions of inclusion. But definitely, we don't see financial inclusion as an objective on its own, but as an enabling factor and as something that allows people to really uh, live better lives, as I mentioned. Um, it's very important, I think, to kind of underscore that that also translates into how we think of what financial inclusion is. We're not thinking of financial inclusion as uh, a mere access to formal financial services or even as a mere usage of financial services, but as the ultimate outcome that it brings to people's lives. So if I can have now access to basic accounts and credit, et cetera, what does it do to me in a positive terms? What does it help me to achieve in life, right? So I think that 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 kind of resonates with those three dimensions. Yeah. yeah and I think it probably ties also with the way that that you know we even as a, a bank in a in a developed economy think of ourselves as helping to provide people with access that is then enabler for for how they improve their lives. Uh, maybe if we could could get into um, some of the the particular initiatives, uh, I'm really interested in where you see the greatest opportunities for financial innovation to really help to extend financial inclusion and support that CGAP mission. Maybe what I should do first is to kind of uh, set the scene, if you don't mind, and just remind people of how many people, why we are even talking about financial inclusion, honestly, because you know yeah. that is very important here. There are currently 1.4 billion adults globally who are excluded from the access to formal financial services. So that's a really large portion of the global population. And we believe at CGAP that to decrease that number, innovation is an important factor. We've seen some significant progress in the past that was actually largely driven by by innovation. A while ago, there's a great story of microfinance. Microfinance, let's remember, at one point was an innovation on its own. And, yeah. and uh, you know, now the, the, the sector serves around 140 million low-income customers, really low-income customers that are hard to be reached by traditional financial service providers. The portfolio is over 124 billion US dollars. And those are fairly conservative, moderate estimates. So I think that's that's a really great success story. Of course, many people would be familiar with the story of mobile money in Kenya, the story of M-Pesa and elsewhere. In fact, over a couple, couple past years, we've seen a big progress on financial inclusion with 700 million people joining the former financial services. And a lot of that happened because of mobile money. But going forward, where we think the next kind of big thing uh, or big success might be is in financial inclusion that is driven by data and innovation that is related to data. So my, my colleagues, Maria Vidal and Arisha Salman, they did some research around digital inclusion of low-income customers, basically looking at how low-income customers, I would say, produce or leave behind digital trails uh, trails of data that can be used in designing and delivering of financial services and how those data trails compare to higher income segments. And what they found is that there is a large portion, it's actually estimated to be 2 billion low-income customers. So those are people who live on less than $5.50 a day who are digitally included. So these people do leave 
significant data trails behind that can be used in delivering better financial services or financial services at all to them. And out of those 2 billion people, one third are excluded currently from the form of financial services. So if we just use those people's data to benefit them and bring them to the former finance sector, we almost immediately reduce the current exclusion rate by, by almost half. So we think that innovation that uses those data trails is really critical in solving the financial inclusion challenge. But what it means is, or what it requires is some sort of creative thinking of, you know, what kind of data we're talking about and how the data can be used in, in delivery of financial services, because we also did find that the data trails vary. In a way, if I simplify, the higher income you have, the more affluent you are, the easier it is to use your data trails to deliver, deliver financial services. Because for instance, you have a digital national ID, maybe because you have uh, records in a credit bureau, etc. Et right? The lower you get, go the income level, the data tra trails robustness may remain the same, but the actual data involved may be less relevant or harder to use in delivery of financial services. And that's why we need innovation. Well, fascinating point you make there in terms of those data trails. And it's probably a good segue to where I wanted to ask you about one particular piece of work you've done recently, that being on open finance in Brazil. And it seems that that Brazil is one of the leading markets in adopting open banking and open finance, you know, probably really one of the world leaders. And I'm curious as you, you look at that particular case, you know, what you've seen as being the defining success factors that have really helped enable progress and driven the adoption in that market. Brazil is a fascinating case. Uh, we are conducting a study on the open finance implementation in Brazil just to better understand what exactly did Brazil do right and uh, what is the current state of implementation and uptake. I must say that for us, definitely Brazil is the leader in implementation of open finance because our, our data shows that currently 16% of the population has adopted open finance already. And that's only a few years after the initial stage of implementation. And that compares to uh, around 13% in the United Kingdom and uh, about 2% in India with account aggregators. So they are the leader. Of course, we are trying to understand what the enabling factors are or you know, we talk about them as a foundation layers. Uh, and there are a few, and as our understanding is deepening, that we are finding more and more. But one thing that Brazil did very well is having a regulator with a clear vision. I just came from Brazil recently, and it's fascinating to hear how many people are referring to the central bank as a critical player and enabler of innovation. That doesn't happen very often in many markets that people would say like, and I mean the industry would say, Yay, we have this great central bank with a with a great vision. So I think that's that's definitely playing an important part. Central bank has been consistently articulating what their big vision is and how they want to achieve it. And I think that definitely helps because it's understood by the sector. But there are other important layers, of course. One of them, which I think is very important, is the fast interoperable payments that were introduced a few years ago, the, the PIX system that has had massive uptake. It's now a common place. People use it across income segments. It has helped people to get family familiarized with digital financial services, get comfortable with digital financial services. And of course, it has helped them to produce more of the digital data. The other important component is the social payments, the G2P payments. 
we were told several times that during the COVID pandemic, there was a massive government uh, support program that was enrolled and that brought many people into the formal finance sector. People just had to open accounts to receive the money. So they went through the whole KYC process and now they could use those accounts. But I would add immediately to that, that the third enabling factor is the variety of providers. Brazil has incredibly vibrant fintech ecosystem with players such as uh, PicPay, Nubank, uh, Mercado Pago, and others. And so it's not only that there is an on-ramping on onboard or onboarding for low-income customers that was partially facilitated by the government, but also those people who are already in the system then have many options they can choose from where they want to bank, where they want to put their money and and what kind of services they want to use. So I, I would probably underscore these three enabling factors, though there are, I guess, many more, including enabling policies and, and so on, but these seem to be quite essential. The central bank vision, I think, that you called out is a really important one and and one where you know Brazil have really made an effort of, of particularly supercharging that. I'm wondering if maybe we can pick up the, the last point you made there, though, about the variety of providers. And I guess what's curious or, or perhaps striking to me is that those you mentioned, like Newbank, for instance, you know they have achieved a significant level of scale. Whereas what we've tended to see in in other markets and perhaps in more developed economies has been that open banking hasn't really seen new players emerge at a particular scale. We've seen the new players that have been very much the small ones, or we've seen the existing players be the ones that have had a more significant impact in in utilising open banking or data sharing regimes. But that's, a, a, I think, an interesting you know, characteristic of the Brazilian model that you have actually had new players that have emerged and achieved a significant scale that we really haven't seen elsewhere. Yes, though I also need to say that the jury is still out on who will be the main sort of provider in the open finance ecosystem because Newbank joined relatively recently, again, for those who are not familiar with the implementation. So there was the initial stage where some players were mandated to join from the very beginning, similar logic to what the UK did, right? But players like Newbank were allowed to choose whether they want to join or not. And and so they joined later and they are still developing new use cases. So I think that we will see more and more, you know, what that actual impact is and who is sort of the, the champion of open finance in Brazil. I, I don't think that that has been uh, d- decided yet. But on that point, what is interesting about this this whole kind of dynamic uh, incumbents versus newcomers in Brazil is that the governance structure for open finance implementation was very democratic in a way that it allowed representatives from those different groups to have fairly equal participation in the governance structure. It was not prioritizing banks or it was not prioritizing the sort of established players, but really giving an equal voice to all of them. I would say that also fintechs in in Brazil have done a really great job in organizing themselves along associations. And so they were then represented through those associations. But what it allowed Brazil to do is to progress fast while taking into account different preferences and different perspectives of those different stakeholders. And while they are now discussing how to change the governance structure and make it into something more permanent, I think for those initial stages, the arrangements that they put in place were quite essential for the success. And one thing that kind of keeps surprising me every time I go to Brazil is how collaborative people from those different groups are. 
you know, there might be perception that somebody may lose uh, in the open finance and somebody may win. And again, we'll see whether that's the case or not. But at the end of the day, all those players collaborate quite quite closely. I've seen, you know, they have a WhatsApp groups focused on different topics. They organize all sorts of social events and, and meetings where everyone comes, everyone participates. And I think it has helped to slowly shift the mindset. And that's something I have observed personally by just going to Brazil every four or so months that comparing to earlier stages, now pretty much everyone sees a benefit in open finance and everyone thinks kind of creatively about how their specific institution can benefit from open finance and how their specific customers can benefit from open finance. So rather than being on defensive part, now I, I would say that pretty much everyone is just trying to see what the opportunity is, articulated very clearly, build cases on that. And, and so that is also massively helpful when the whole ecosystem kind of, you know, works together. So we've talked there a bit about the the landscape of the different participants, the different players in the or providers in the system. What about on the user side? And I'm curious where you've seen you know, the the particular impact, whether it's use cases for particular segments of the Brazilian population, or, or how have you seen that from the the user side? So SIGAP would like to know eventually, I would like to know eventually, you know, what is the impact on on people's lives, right? And we talked about it at the very beginning. We're not working on financial inclusion for the sake of financial inclusion. We actually want to make people better and yes. their lives better. We are planning to eventually move to that kind of impact study or impact assessment exercise, but we think it's too early because after all, it's innovation and innovations have very specific uptake curve. And so what I can tell you now is that, and I should say for uh, for your audience that we did conduct a study in Brazil that just concluded with 2,000 phone surveys and some in-depth interviews of customers, but also industry players. And what we found is that there is very high level, I think, of awareness among the society. So when you ask people whether they are familiar with the open finance concept, they either say yes, or if they're not sure and you explain what it is, over half of the population altogether is aware of open finance. To me, for a country of the size of Brazil, that's pretty significant number. The uptake, again, it's it's around 16% of the adult population in our in our survey was slightly lower, but still close to that number. And from the demographic point of view, you see that a lot of these people who are using open finance are so-called early adopters, right? And early adopters share a very similar profile, at least what I've seen. Uh, so it's uh, very often urban, male, higher education, more affluent, right? And it's probably not quite shocking because as I said, we've seen that with other innovation as well. This is the demographic that uh, usually kind of gets involved first. But I think that that awareness is very important. And what will be very important going forward is that the adopters eventually become more equally spread across the, the society. And that will only happen if people see the value and the use cases. So we ask, what are the use cases? And maybe not surprisingly, a lot of the use cases concern credit. So extending credit limits using open finance data, improving terms of loans using open finance data, better targeting loan offers using open finance data. Those are very prominent use cases. In addition to others that you would expect, such as personal finance management tools, for instance. But we have some 
you know, anecdotal evidence again that just by adding open finance data, providers are able to significantly expand their reach of loan products by not only relying on credit bureaus, but relying on, on those alternative data sources that open finance enables. One thing that I think is worth mentioning here. So we specifically ask uh, one of our questions in, in the survey was, would you be willing to share your data through open finance if you got a benefit in terms of better credit terms? That kind of should tell you what is the potential uptake. So only one third of our respondents said that they would be willing to exchange their data. And I think that's very kind of telling of how early this innovation is and how much of caution there is among among people and that it will require some more time and some more maturity for people to really see the impact, to really see the benefits, to be more willing to share the data. Because when we ask why there is this lower willingness to share the data, one concern was that it may hurt them actually. So instead of getting something in exchange, you may be hurt because now what you've got may be taken away from you. So this is just to say, you know, in, in terms yes. of the, the use cases we see, but if I may add one thing to it, I'm personally very curious whether and when, to me, it's more when than whether, we will see a qualitative change in the innovation because a lot of the things that we've seen and I also mentioned are incremental improvements to the existing products and to the existing processes. You know, I can extend your credit limit because now I can see that you have some informal income or I get, we actually, one provider got 30% more visibility into people's income. That's great. It's beneficial, but it's incremental. It will probably take a new bank or some you know, innovative company to think about open finance in a very different way and come up with a very different solutions that may not represent the incremental change, but a huge qualitative shift. And I, I think that will happen as the system matures in Brazil or elsewhere. And I think that like I had noticed in your recent blog post on this topic, you made the observation that the outreach needs to extend more to the underserved parts of the population and the use cases most relevant for them. And I think that's really what you've just outlined there of how you, firstly, what's already been done in terms of providing some benefit in credit, but as you say, where the next quantum leap can come from, as opposed to probably what we've seen in the UK and to some extent in Australia, where a lot of the early development around open banking was in, as you said, PFM, and that hasn't really had the longevity or doesn't bring the same value for the particular populations we're talking about here. Yes. And what is interesting about Brazil is that they have expiration date for the consent. So you're granting consent only for 12 months and yeah, then right. it ex expires and then you need to renew. So, uh, you know, we will actually see how much value people uh, see in, in uh, sharing their data depending on yeah. how how quickly they renew their consent. And of course, for some use cases, it doesn't make sense to continually renew your consent. If you just apply for credit, it's a one-time consent that you give. But for PFM tools and some of the more continuous services, we would expect those renewal rates to be high if people see see the value. So that's uh, that's something I'm very curious about. The other thing, you know, I'm also, and I would say exactly how those uptake numbers change by the demographic factors, because if we don't see open finance leveling up and reaching out to different segments of the society, then we collectively, I guess, would need, as a, as a financial inclusion community, would need to ask the hard question whether it's because of the design of open finance or is it because of the underlying infrastructure or, you know, what what is the reason? Because... <clears throat> 
my concern, and it kind of brings it to the bigger question of digital public infrastructure, or as we call it at CGAP, digital public ecosystems. The big question is if we're building new things, new regimes, new systems, we really need to make sure that they work for, for everyone, for all parts of the society. And don't repeat some of the previous mistakes where systems are built, but only some parts of the society really, really benefit. So that's why it's very important for regulators and research organizations like CGAP to kind of keep monitoring the the uptake and implementation and, and then ask those hard questions. Absolutely. Maybe if I can change gears a little bit, and I realize that I'm stepping away a bit from your, your core mission in extending uh, inclusion uh, across the world and in developing markets. But of course, you're in the US and you know, we've both noted recently that the CFPB made their announcement recently for open banking in the US, which I think in a lot of circles has been uh, much anticipated or perhaps long overdue. Uh, just curious, any initial reactions? I, I imagine it's probably a little bit too early to, to call, but how you might see the outlook for a regulated open banking regime in the US? I am very excited about this and I'm very, very curious to see how it evolves because I live in the United States and I am familiar with the payment system. And as compared to, I guess, many people here, I think that the payment systems needs to be improved. We need fast, interoperable payments and we probably need open finance that would streamline processes such as application for mortgage and, and other. Your listeners may be familiar that the U.S. has been following the private sector-led approach for payments and for open finance. So... Some version of open finance does exist in the United States, if we define it very broadly. But I think people's experience really varies depending on what kind of use case they tested, with what kind of player, and what their expectations were. So I don't know. I'm I, I'm curious. I've heard people saying, you know, the payment system in the United States works very well, uh, so why we should change anything? And I guess it's true for some parts of the, the, the customer segments and for some use cases. But, you know, I come from Czech Republic and I remember when a while ago I went back to my hometown, which is very small hometown, uh, very small town. And in a local store, I was paying with the U.S. card and the cashier was just laughing. And I asked her, why are you, why are you laughing? And she said, I have not seen this kind of card in ages. And what she meant by that was that the card didn't have a chip. Yeah. So, of course, it was less secure and I had to sign something. And and so it kind of tells you that the world of payments and now open finance has moved quite a bit. And I think it's good for the U.S. to think about how to, how to catch up. But uh, this is more comment from the user and customer perspective because yes, I haven't yeah, done yeah. any work in the, in the U.S. I, I echo your sentiments about the U.S. Uh, experience, you know, from my own time there. And certainly, you know, when I contrast the, the payment system in the U.S. to that that we have in Australia, the ability to peer-to-peer -peer shift money quickly and cheaply uh, has, has certainly been a challenge in the U.S., um, right. I, I, and you know what is what is sorry Brett for for interrupting yeah. but what is interesting that you know in many markets open finance has been introduced as a way to promote competition and i think that's one thing that is quite particular about the united states we have i think over 7000 banks and credit unions here in theory the competition should be here but one thing that is different here is that non-banks, they don't have access to the payment system. So we don't see the similar dynamic as we see in the UK and some other markets where non-banks can start offering 
a very good payment services and be directly members of the payment systems. So that that probably kind of plays out in how things evolve in the US. That's just kind of my theory. But the point I wanted to really emphasize is that the competition landscape here in the United States is different from many markets that I am familiar with. Yeah, I think the other part of where the competition element is going to be so fascinating is the extent to which the beneficiaries may be new entrants or small firms or whether it would actually be the the big tech firms and whether it's the ability to be able to port your banking data over to a tech firm who already knows exactly where you've been from their geo tracking, uh, knows exactly who your social media con- contacts are, knows exactly the speed that you read at on your devices, et cetera, whether the open banking regime of the CFPB is, is an enabler for that increased consolidation of the, the big tech players or whether the reality of how, as you said, you've you've kind of had this market in the US already without the regulated approach, whether that was already happening and whether that happens anyway outside of a, a regulated open banking regime. I think that's another curious dimension to, to watch play out. Indeed. I will not comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I wanted to, to conclude by, we'll switch away from open banking now, but but come back to another paper that you'd published recently, which was on AI. And of course, this has been very much the the year of the mainstreaming of AI in so many spaces. But in your paper, you set out a, a seven-step framework for the scope of digitalizing microfinance. And you mentioned microfinance uh, earlier in this discussion. You had a seven-step framework for how to enhance business intelligence within that realm. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little more around how you see this technology in particular helping to support inclusion and prosperity. I'll just say a few words about that project and why we wrote that blog. Because over the past two or so years, I was leading a project that was looking into how microfinance institutions can leverage technology to deliver better services and also to compete with the newcomers. Because we think that microfinance institutions still remain very important players in the financial inclusion space. And many of them, they struggle with technology and how to kind of modernize their operations. So we set up project to test out different approaches. And very quickly, we've identified one specific area that really needs a lot of attention and, and work, and that's business intelligence. So basically using data to develop product, to kind of introduce the agile product development, and also to just improve understanding of the customer. So in a, in a way, it's kind of bringing us back to open finance and the topic of, of data. We run over, I believe, 20 pilots with different microfinance institutions, uh, helping them to implement a set of dashboards that would leverage the data that the microfinance institutions already had for collecting new insights and then using those insights in, in the business decision-making process. We very quickly realized that it's quite labor-intensive process to do so at the current stage of, of the market. It's not as much de- dependent on technology. It doesn't require a huge investment in technology, but it's very dependent on human resources and, and capacity. And so in that blog post that you're referring to, we basically asked, you know, what if we used artificial intelligence to enhance the business intelligence of microfinance institutions, how much of effort it would save us and microfinance institutions. Can some of the human resource related challenges be overcome with using the artificial intelligence? And as you can tell from what we what we found in the blog post or what we've summarized in the blog post, we think that to a degree it, it can help, but you still need to have the data analysts and people who are product owners who can collaborate very 
very closely with the data analyst. So that is that is for now. But you're asking sort of about the more future looking, if not not maybe prediction, but some sort of analysis. There, I think we will see probably actually fairly soon. We're already seeing AI tool marketplaces and, and different players integrating AI tools in their suites of products. And I think this will probably dramatically influence or impact how microfinance institutions and others can leverage data to the benefit of their customers and to their own benefit. For example, if cloud computing providers or core banking system providers start integrating AI tools, it will make life of those organizations much easier. And that will have the impact on the customers and sort of the ultimate well-being of, of those customers. And I, I think in a way I can actually tie this back to the open finance because one question that I would like to answer is to what extent implementation and benefits of open finance depend on the existing capabilities of financial service providers to work with data, right? Because open finance is about collecting data, but we also know that the more data doesn't necessarily mean the better products or the more efficient processes. There is actually cost associated with collection of and processing of data. That's where the AI again can come very, very handy because it may lower the cost of implementation for open finance, but it can also kind of equalize large and smaller players, the incumbents and, and, and newcomers. And I think reducing the cost of open banking and open finance implementation is a big prerequisite for its success in lower income environments. And again, you know, you hear it in the UK, you hear it in Brazil and else, elsewhere, open finance implementation is costly. A lot of incumbents would complain, you know, this is just driving our cost. That's probably true. But again, the question is to what extent that cost is specifically related to open finance implementation and to what extent that cost would need to be incurred anyway, because many providers just need to update their data analytical practices, their data analytical capabilities. And I think that a large portion of the open finance implementation cost is related to improving data analytics. By extension, I believe that AI can actually lower that cost of open finance implementation eventually, but we're not seeing that, that yet. That's a fascinating point as we look ahead to the, the next horizon of, of open banking or open finance. And you know, I, I agree with you that you know, we've seen a lot of very substantive compliance cost, not only on the part of the large incumbent banks like ourselves, but also actually a lot of the small firms that have found it's actually a, a prohibitive barrier to entry to get to the level that they need to achieve their accreditation as an open banking provider. So it would, would be a very significant development if AI and what it enables in terms of, of getting your data in order uh, as a, a way of bringing that cost down. But it's also, I think, a really interesting point you make there around the capability of AI or the potential of AI. It takes me back to a presentation that Manju Puri of Duke University gave at the FDIC a few years ago, in which she'd done this she'd done this fascinating study comparing credit assessment on the basis of all of the traditional credit bureau metrics of income, repayment history, asset base, et cetera. And then separately for the same borrowers, assess their credit worthiness purely on the basis of what she called their digital footprint being what time of day you logged in, whether you typed all in capitals, whether you used a Gmail address or a, a work email, um, what operating system you used, etc. And she and her, her team of researchers found that the digital footprint model was actually slightly more accurate, but you actually got a real quantum leap uplift when you could put those two data sets together. And whilst you know, one reaction I have to that is 
I'm firstly quite scared of that from the perspective of what it could mean in, in competition that if it means that you can put your big tech data and your banking data together and get that quantum leap uplift, regulated open banking might mean that only the big tech firms are ever able to do that because of the asymmetrical data flows that are allowed. But if I put that to one side, it does tie into, I think, some of the future capability that you're alluding to that you know AI could really open opportunities to do what Manju Puri was alluding to, but but actually bring it at scale as opposed to the you know, the small pilot research exercise perhaps that, um, that she and her team were running. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree with the risk that you point out. And there's a lot of excitement about open data, which is that concept of bringing other non-financial players into the regime, be it utility companies, telecommunication companies, or e-commerce platforms, etc. Et and, you know, it can go different ways. Uh, we'll see. It is exciting prospect, but it can, again, go, go different ways. But I, I do see another risk, which is the digital divide. I mentioned earlier the early adopters, it kind of creates a dilemma how you mature open finance regime when you have early adopters who are very specific profiles, which also means that financial service providers get to work with their data and their, their data footprints, right? So they start developing products for this specific segment. How do you develop the system in a way that eventually some of the providers can start working with lower income segments whose data is not as present as those early adopters once. There, you know, we've been closely following the digital sandbox in the UK as, a, as an interesting concept where you create a synthetic data lakes and you make sure that different segments of the society are represented so that providers can start developing products for them as well, even if they don't join the open finance uh, regime yet. But that is something that I think is kind of opposite risk to what you des described, or not maybe opposite, but another risk to what you described, which I also see quite, quite uh, present. So Eva, I think you've probably underlined there the point that you know, open banking or open finance can play out, as you put it, in a number of different ways. But the example that you've talked us through in the Brazil case, I think, is a really exciting one in terms of you know, the opportunity that that's bringing. A lot of great insights there from Evo, highlighting the magnitude of the global inclusion challenge and the opportunities in microfinance, open banking and AI to help progress on that. And perhaps with our Australian bias and the prevalence of our CDR regime here, I especially like his point on the Brazilian case study, the world leader in open finance, and as Evo said, very much driven with a clear, clear vision. There was so much in that that I wanted to bring in my colleague, Alicia Abaratne, to help draw together the key takeaways. Alicia, welcome. And can I start by asking what really stood out for you in Evo's comments? Thanks, Brad. So many fantastic insights. But if I were to pick three things that really stood out to me, I thought your dialogue around the dimensions of inclusion was an important reminder of the need to address this topic holistically, with access to financial services being one core pillar, but also the fact that there are other policy levers that we need to be thinking of here. Secondly, I really liked Devo's comments on AI, which I thought were also very insightful, and the links he made between which sectors of, the, of society are typically early adopters of these kinds of technologies, younger males from urban areas, and the need to be cognizant of this when you're considering accuracy and representation in data sets. And his emphasis on when we're building new infrastructure and technologies, we need to make sure that they work for all and not repeat the mistakes of the past. This really resonated for me in the context of the opportunities we have here in Australia in digital ID and the CDR space. Finally, the case study of Brazil that you and Evo spoke to is one that I'm really interested in and what learnings we in Australia can take from the great leaps um, that that jurisdiction has made in terms of adoption. This is a topic that will be great to pick up in an upcoming episode of NAB Digital Next. 
Totally agree. I think uh, we've definitely had our appetite peaked by Evo's comments, and it's one that we need to look uh, a lot further into. Um, so thank you, Alicia, and thanks again to Evo Yenick of the World Bank's consultative group to assist the poor. As Alicia alludes, we will have more on NAP Digital Next, including looking at this Brazilian case study. More immediately, we're going to debrief the key takeaways from our two recent digital identity design sprints for helping to shape the future Australian digital identity ecosystem. So please join us again then, and thanks for being with us on NAB Digital Next. Music